Here's good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the pine pod, half a pine chill, half a joke, quarter joke, nippin' and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, here's good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the half gallon pint pot, half a pint jill, half a joke, quarter joke, nippin' and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be continuing our series on James Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking Tales. Specifically, we are now looking at the prairie. So you can urge you to go back and listen to my last episode on the prairie or, you know, even better yet, to go back to listen to this entire series on the Leatherstocking Tales to catch all the themes in this wonderful series of novels. So the prairie is the third of the Leatherstocking Tales to be written. It was written in 18, written and published in 1827. Uh, yet it's the final, the leather stocking tales. If you f- read them in the order that I've been reading them, which is the order chronologically of the life of the character Natty Bumpo. Uh, of course, he has a different name in each of these novels. He's, we first meet him as Deerslayer, and then we meet him later on as Hawkeye, then as the Pathfinder, later on as Leather Stocking, and then finally he's just known as the Trapper. Um, a very isolated figure in the final novel when we meet him, living pretty much on his own. Um, he's known by some of the local Indian tribes, but he's he's a much more isolated figure. So he's only the trapper. He doesn't even hunt anymore. He just lives by his trapping. This novel really covers the final days of the life of Leatherstocking, his final adventure, if you will. He has moved from New York, where he spent most of his life, to the prairies on the other side of the Mississippi, to the Dakotas. Um, it takes place in lands acquired by the United States in the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. It's set a few years after that in 1805, and it's part of a new frontier. Our main character is fleeing the advancing pioneer society we were introduced to in the pioneers. In fact, at one point in the novel, he said he wants to go to a place where he won't hear axes cutting down trees. So he's, he's really fleeing elements of civilization. He's living out the last days of his life as a trapper, you know, being really old, too old to hunt, it seems. While doing this, he runs into a new generation of pioneers. He meets some people who speak to his past, and he again must supply his skills to a conflict between whites and Indians. Uh, but it's in a new setting, and we have a few uh, new interesting themes here to also talk about. So in the last episode, I focused mostly on how the prairie began. The novel, The Prairie, I mean, not the, not the prairie itself. A caravan of, of I guess, settlers uh, called, you know, from the Bush family are going deep into the West. It's in 1805, past the Mississippi River. They're going past the place normal settlers would go because at this point in 1805, still much of the kind of the Midwest hadn't been even, you know, the Great Lakes region hasn't been fully settled yet. You know, Wisconsin didn't become a state until 1848, for instance. Now, along the way, they meet, run into Natty Bumpo, who helps them establish a little bit of a camp. He's introduced to a variety of characters. There's also, it's a large group with, with a large number of children. We don't even meet all of them, really. Um, there are seven sons and some daughters. We meet a couple of the sons, and I don't think really any 
except for one or two of the daughters are, are mentioned. So I'm not quite clear how many there are. It's not something Cooper really focuses on. Now we have kind of our villain of the tale is Abram White. His brother-in-law, uh, Ishmael Bush, is also kind of in on the nefarious actions of, of the novel, but he's a little bit more of a redeemable character. So you got the Bushes, uh, his Bush's brother-in-law, Abraham White. Then we have Ellen Wade is here. She's like a, a, a niece of the family. There's one man who's with them who's not part of the family. His name is Obed, Obed Batiest. He's Dr. Obed Batiest. He's a doctor. He's a physician. He's there to provide medical care, but he's mostly interested in pursuing his avocation, which is naturalism. And he's he's kind of a nerdy character, very interested in science. And he's a foil to Natty Bumpo in a lot of ways, particularly on issues of religion and science and, and knowledge. So one night... Natty is talking to Ellen Wade and meets her lover, Paul Hoover, who's a bee hunter. He's, he's not a beekeeper. He's a bee hunter, meaning he's taking, getting bees from the, just from nature and, and packaging it and selling it. He's not really with the Bush caravan because he's not really welcome into it. So he's just kind of about the outskirts hanging around, following them. Now they're quickly taken captive by the Sioux. The Sioux... Indians steal the Bush's horses through kind of a, a, a rustling operation and they release other animals. Natty helps the captives escape by releasing the Sioux horses. And, and we learn later on that the Bush caravan is holding a strange, young, black-haired woman and that this woman is causing conflict within the Bush family, particularly between Abram and one of the sons, Asa. Now, one night while Natty, Paul, and Obed are eating buffalo together, they run into a strange man. And that's where the first quarter or so of the prairie ends. So now we can start to come towards the middle part of the story. The man who reveals himself turns out to be Captain Duncan Uncas Middleton. He is the grandson of Duncan Hayward of the last of the Mohicans. And he takes on this name Uncas from his father and... You know, because his father had the name Uncas and he took it on himself as well. He, he's not even really clear who Uncas is. So we have this theme here of kind of this forgetting of the past, even of our own family. And, and maybe this is a suggestion that American society is advancing or moving on a little bit too fast, quickly. Natty himself is, is absorbed by this revelation, particularly with the name Uncas. And there is a symbolic carrying on of the Uncas name and legacy here. Uncas... Either Uncas or Chingachgook is the last of the Mohicans. Um, they both kind of fit that. Let's say Uncas is the last of the Mohicans because, you know, Chingachgook is a little bit more affiliated with the Delaware. Uncas then lives on, in a way, in this name. And we've seen this before in the Pioneers when uh, Oliver Edwards, he sort of is adopted into the Delaware tribe and he identifies himself from time to time as half Delaware. So even though that tribe is dying out, it's it's lived on. And I talked in the last episode about how troubling it is historically the way Cooper describes the Indians as a declining, evaporating people. And there's good reasons in the 19th century to think that way. They were being, they were victims of genocide. They were pushed down to the brink of, of extinction, at least in, in the areas that would be part of the U.S., but they survived this, and, and from our perspective, this never happened. There, there wasn't a, the last of these people. They, they have prospered, and I gave population numbers 
of Native Americans today, around 5 million if you include people with some uh, Indian heritage. So, but still, thematically within the stories, this guy taking on the name Uncas is kind of a symbolic carrying on of the legacy of the Mohicans. But Middleton, it turns out, is a poor carrier on of Uncas's legacy in a lot of ways, and it's something that Natty likes to point out. Now, after being exposed to Middleton, the trapper gives some of his own history as a guide and a warrior during the French and Indian War days. And we get some moments here that really do make us feel for the aging Natty as he's approaching the end of his days. Quote, Nature could endure no more, overcome by a flood of unusual and extraordinary sensations and simulated by tender and long dormant recollections, strangely and unexpectedly revived. The old man had just self-command enough to add in a voice that was hollow and unnatural through the efforts he made to command it. Boy, I was that scout, a warrior once, a miserable trapper now. When the tears broke over his wasted cheeks out of the fountains that have been long dry and sinking his face between his knees, he covered it decently with a buckskin garment and sobbed aloud. The spectacle produced co um, correspondent emotions in the companions. Poor Natty. Poor Natty. He does come off, as, you know, we've been with this character for so long, and he's always such a strong and assertive character. And he's been always a character who hasn't been afraid of death. He's been a character who, you know, has deep connections with people, has great friendships. He remembers people. He, you know, he's always been kind of stoic, of course. But now we meet him at the end of his life. He's very lonely. He he really has no place for him left in the world. He lived most of his life. All of his friends are dead. And, you know, he doesn't even have people that remember him anymore. Or remember his friend Uncas, for instance. Even the guy who has Uncas's name doesn't remember him anymore. And it's, it's all a very tragic and sad thing for him. And I, you know, he's... He, He's, he's become a very pathetic figure. He, he doesn't lose any of his good characteristics and he's still able to stand up and help people when he needs to. And, you know, he faces this last adventure of his life with all of the characteristics we come to expect from, from Natty. But there is still something very pathetic about him in this, this novel. Now, Middleton tells of his reasons for coming here. It's not revealed right away. It's, it's revealed in flashback later on. But, you know, basically he's trying to find his bride who's been kidnapped by the Bush family. So this, there's been hints before that something weird is going on with the Bush caravan, the Bush um, party. But this is the first real clear evidence we have that, that they're basically full alt-right criminal, criminals, kidnappers. We're not told the details until a later chapter. So we return to the Bush camp. The men have come back to the camp absent Asa. And there was a, they were on a hunting trip, you know, just trying to stay alive. And Asa doesn't come back. So most of, for a while anyways, there's worry and anxiety over Asa and his fate. The assumption is that if harm came to him, it was caused by Indians. Because there are hostile Sioux Indians in, in the hinterland here. And, you know, but some people still hope he might come back. That maybe he's just been out there on his own. Quote, when all is finished into rights, we shall have the boy coming up, grumbling for his meal, and hungry as a bear after his winter's nap. His stomach is as true as the best clock in Kentucky, and seldom wants winding up to tell the time of day or night. A desperate eater is Asa, when uh, hungered by a little work. That's the optimistic interpretation of what happens, but certainly there are good reasons to fear that something happened to him. 
But in general, the, the party holds out hope. It's not until later, when he doesn't come back, that they start to really despair. The next day, when Asa does not arrive, Esther, his mother, demands that the men go out and look for Asa. Ibrahim continues to push the idea that maybe it was the Sioux that killed Asa. And eventually they do come back with the body of Asa, which was found out in the prairie. And they're able to identify the bullet that, that killed Asa, and it's revealed to be a bullet of Natty. So Natty, apparently, he, I guess he makes his own bullets, or when he buys bullets, he marks them. It's not really clear, but it's, it's got like the N on there or something. So it's identified as his own. And I don't know why. I, I guess the reason you might want to mark your bullets is for shooting contests. This is the first of these novels that doesn't have a shooting contest of some sort. Um, I guess the last of the Mohicans didn't need them, but at least three of them have a dramatic shooting contest of some sort. Uh, this one doesn't really have it, but maybe that'd be a reason he didn't mark his bullets. Or maybe, if, you know, if you're, it was a contest over who killed a deer or something, right? He would do that. So maybe it was a habit he built up. Uh, it is an issue in the pioneers, like who shot the, the deer. So, um, that's, that kind of begins to raise suspicions about Natty. Like, why would Natty kill this guy? Is he just a murderer? Um, it's a, you know, there's not really a clear motive for why he would have done it, but did it. You know, it, it turns out it's Abraham, Abraham who, who did the murder because he wants to shut Asa up. And he's basically trying to frame Natty. But the group here is reminded of the dangers of living on this hostile uh, frontier. After the funeral, they go back to the camp and they find the Snow White tent, which contained this mysterious woman we met just briefly uh, in a previous chapter. She was just kind of coming out of the tent looking around. She is gone. Ishmael and Esther are shocked at what happened. And they're also shocked at the absence of Ellen Wade, who's gone. So what happened to Ellen Wade? What happened to the tent? What happened to this woman in the Snow White uh, tent? Well, it's explained over a handful of chapters that uh, that come up next so there's kind of a non-linear storytelling in this in this novel I you know I'm sure it's been done before but it's 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 more it's done more here than any of the other leather stocking tales where this the story is told kind of in flashbacks details are always given in flashbacks and conversations that come later but here you actually have the telling of the story in a disjunct just um a, a non-linear way so anyways, we get the flashback of what happened to Ellen Wade and the woman in the Snow White tent. Basically, Ellen was left in charge of guarding the camp as the men went off to hunt and later on to find the body of Asa. So let me just come out with what happened here. The dark-haired woman is a woman named Inez. She's the young wife, basically just like 17 or 18, very, very young, uh, the wife of Middleton. So Middleton told the story of Inez to his new companions, Natty, Paul Hover, Dr. Bott was there too. And they arrive with guns to, to simply liberate Inez from the wagon and the Snow White tent where she's being hid. Ellen is guarding the site and the men arrive armed and ready to fight. And she actually puts up a pretty good fight. And she's a character that sort of disappears from the second half of the novel in a lot of ways and she, she shows up basically as, as a subject of the male gaze. And in the next episode, I'm going to talk about how Cooper deals with women in general across these books. Um, so I'll, I'll say a little bit more about this. But, you know, he's capable of having women, female characters be very brave and insightful. Yet other times, you know, when they're not really necessary, you know, sometimes they're just like subjects of the male gaze. And sometimes they're just there to be the damsel in distress. 
So it's it's a very conflict. I'm not quite sure what to make fully of, of how he deals with women. And Ellen, I think, is a troubling character in a way. One problem in this novel is the cast is so huge, and you know, there's not, not really enough page space to give all the characters a lot to do. Um, but Ellen's great moment sort of is here, where she guards the site. The demands that she give up the tent is frames in terms of law. So this is a subtext theme throughout it: is the arrival of the law and the arrival of of civilization, and it's mentioned here. And we actually get it it's from Obed. Bot, who who gives this speech first? He's he kind of concludes his contract with the Bush family, considering them nefarious people. He says it is void. It has been deceived on the very premises, and I hereby pronounce a certain compactum entered into and concluded between Ishmael Bush squatter and Obadid Batius M.D. to be in continually null and of non-effect. Nay, children, to be null is merely a negative property. It is fraught with no evil to thy worthy parent. So lay aside the firearms and listen to the abominations of reason i declared vicious null abrogated and he goes on and batius is a character who will go on in these long speeches you know we see these long speeches in the in the stories before but they're always speeches of like indians giving long recitations on on issues or white people engaging with indians using the same strategy so natty's capable of doing this too but he doesn't usually he's talking in short one word you know sentences or not, not literally one word sentences, but right to the point all the time. Batius is not. He often talks too long without real, real person, pr- purpose. But towards the end of the speech he gives, he goes back to this issue of law. Now, young woman, for the last and therefore the most solemn asking, I demand that thee, the surrender of this rock without delay or resistance, in the joint names of power, of justice, and of the law he would have added but recollecting that this ominous word would again provoke the hostility of the squatter children he succeeded in swallowing it in good season it concluded with the least dangerous and convertible term of reason so he doesn't say the word law but law is there and the arrival of law it's coming law's coming just like it did in temple town in the pioneers it's an inevitable to arrive and it's going to push out the frontier it's going to push out natty bumpo it's going to push out the indians um, so we're constantly reminded of that throughout this, this story. At several points, it comes up. So eventually the standoff ends. Inez comes out of her tent. And one of the Bush children, Phoebe, I don't really know much about her, really. She's, this might be the only time she really shows up in any memorable way. She doesn't know about Inez. Most of the Bush killed children really don't know about this strange woman. She shoots and she misses. Ellen thinks that Inez was shot because I think Inez kind of goes down into cover. She seeks out to aid her, and in all this confusion, the men are able to enter the camp, liberate Inez, and then she takes Ellen with them. So Ellen and Inez are added to this small band of, of companions. So at this point, Cooper gives us the backstory of Inez and Middletown, Middleton. Captain Middleton was offered land in Louisiana. He's kind of a captain in the U.S. Army, but this is under the t- back when Louisiana was, I guess, already American, but and he's sort of part of the frontier um, garrison there but you still have all these Spanish and French nobility there and landowners and people so there's one Spanish noble named Don Augustin de Cervantales Cervantalos. he is this, so this is symbolic of the changing ownership of Louisiana isn't it Louisiana was once Spanish then it became French but it, that was during the Napoleonic Wars when Napoleon you know, basically had a joint monarchy with, with Spain through his I think it was his brother or something 
Um, so Spain handed Louisiana over to France, where it became kind of an adjunct to the colony in Haiti. But this whole thing with Captain Middleton has seemed to symbolize the changing of land ownership of Louisiana to Americans. And to symbolize this transfer of land, though, we have the Spanish gentry man giving his daughter in marriage to Middleton. She's a young, very beautiful woman, but it's also a symbol of a multicultural frontier, right? Not Mexican. I don't know if Cooper would go that far in this, in this, this story, but by making her as kind of a Spanish lady, he's able to kind of symbolize the joining of, like in a multicultural frontier area, the joining of these different cultures of, of Louisiana. I don't know, maybe it should have been French because I guess Louisiana does have a more of, I don't know, maybe not the upper parts of, of Louisiana where this takes place. Maybe, you know, in Southern Louisiana, sure. But anyways, you know, all of this land was pretty loosely owned and, and occupied before the United States came in anyways at least by whites. But so after the wedding, virtually on the wedding night, Inez is captured, right? So there's no real sign of her emergence. It's assumed she's just a jilted Middleton that she didn't really like him and she just left. But he won't believe it and he insists on finding her and following her. Eventually, a story of what happens is conveyed to them through the testimony of a syphilis drunk who basically says, I'll tell you what I know if you give me money. And Middleton gives the money, and finally the drunk is able to tell the story that basically criminals have kidnapped her and have taken her west. So Middleton has to get together his posse, and they chase the criminals deeper and deeper into Louisiana. And basically this gets us up to speed. I guess the motive is not really there. I, and I finished this novel, and I'm still not entirely clear on what the Bush family was after, except a pretty girl. Um... But anyways, they're criminal kidnappers. They, they were criminals before they did this too. So you know, they were on the run from the law for other reasons. But now they have another reason to be on the run from the law. Now they're on the run from the army through Middleton. Most of the children really don't know much about this though. Uh, Asa was killed by Ibrahim for the more vile of the two elder males for raising questions about the kidnapping. So th this kind of sort of brings us up to speed in terms of, of the plot on most questions. But back at the camp, the group is now joined by Alan and Inez. They must flee before the men return. So Inez tells the story about how she's treated. And it turns out she's not treated horribly. She was given certain rules, like she wasn't supposed to go to the camp. She was supposed to be quiet, you know, and all that kind of thing. But, you know, there was a deal given out, like, we won't hurt you and, and harm you if you basically lay low. So once again, Natty is witness to a, a young burgeoning love. He, although never married himself he got close in the pathfinder uh, which hadn't yet been written so i don't even know if this was at the time cooper was probably imagining natty to have just been a lifelong bachelor you know it's later on that he brings up this story about actually two stories both of which about how close he got to marriage in in the pathfinder he got very close to marrying uh, what was her name again Mabel, that was her name, Mabel and then in the deerslayer he got fairly close to marrying judith although that one was less certain but at least it was thrown out there as a possibility for him and it was more under threat of, of his life that he would have had to have married her uh so he's but he's always been around romances or more meaningful romances in his life in the deerslayer it was chingachgook and hist and 
and to a lesser degree Hetty, Hutter, and Hurry Harry. In the Pathfinder, it was Mabel and and this young man he was traveling with. In the Pioneer, it's Elizabeth and Oliver Edwards. It's Alice and Duncan Hayward and Last of the Bohicans. And here we have another one. Um, Middleton and Inez, and then also Ellen and and Hoover. So he's always surrounded by these romances. So he's certainly someone who maybe knows about love, and he's able to philosophize on it from time to time too, which is kind of cute. Um, he says, I, I, I have thought it, and I would say it, Captain, but I remember how your grandfather used to love to look upon the face of her as he led away for a wife in the days of his youth and happiness. Tis nature, tis nature, and tis wiser to give way a little before its feeling than to try to stop a current that will have its course. So his philosophy of love is like his philosophy of life generally, is that nature has its own rules and nature has its own kind of guiding principles. Very Taoist approach to love. Now Natty's plan essentially is to go to Middleton soldiers. Middleton had like a base of soldiers somewhere pretty far away, but they think they can get there. It's it's probably going to run them into conflict with Indians. So that's the main danger. They on the so kind of they're being chased by the bush family and they have to get through Indian territory and where to go is the question. And Middleton says, you know, I have soldiers based not far from here, you know, but still far enough that it's a trouble. And so we're back into kind of familiar territory for Leatherstocking in that he must guide people through a hostile environment to to safety. Natty and Batius have one of a handful of interesting philosophical talks. This time it's about love and life and nature and it's worth examining. For me, I really like what Cooper does with these two characters. Um, having these long conversations about science, about the value of certain skills in the wild. Uh, he doesn't talk as much as he does in other novels about about like um, gifts. This was the thing he was always talking about in other, especially in the Deerslayer and the Pathfinder, gifts that people have like skills either given by kind of a racial identity or more often from their own experiences and training and abilities, right? And he's, he thinks that you should kind of have to go with your gifts and, and not try to fight too much against them. You are who you are, essentially, is what he often says. Um, now, Batius has a lot less naturalistic, more hard scientific mind. A lot of what he wants to do is impose science on nature, and he does this through taxonomy. He's a big believer in the Linnaean system of, of categorizing the animals. So whenever he sees a dead animal or even a live animal, he tries to give it a name or to identify it in this complex Linnaean system. For Natty, it doesn't really matter what these animals are. You know, Just give them the vernacular name. There's no reason to burden them with a the scientific name. And they just talk about a lot of issues here. I'm, I'm not going to go into all of these, but if you read this book... Or if you're reading along with me, I, for me, these are some of the most interesting conversations they have. Maybe because we're back to kind of Nandy as the philosopher. We, we, we saw a lot of it in the Deerslayer. So we get another surprise visit from a new character. Cooper does this a lot in this novel, more than he does in others. He, he did it always once in a while, but, you know, but there's like a chapter will end, like someone comes out, you know, jumps on them and you know, announces himself and who is it? Well, you have to wait for the next chapter. It's just almost like it was a serially published, which I don't think it was, but you get, you know, you get this kind of 
structure in serial novels from time to time. It, it, it's, it's what he does here. So Natty drops his rifle and surrender to the man who turns out to be a Pawnee warrior named Hardheart. I, I don't think he identifies himself yet, but he's like a, a chief. But he's a very young man, and eventually he becomes Hawk. Um, I want to say Hawkeye, the trapper's adopted son. Now the Pawnee are, are sort of the good guys of this new frontier. They're always compared by the trapper, by Natty, to the Delaware as sort of the good guys. The Sioux, meanwhile, are compared negatively with the Mingo. The Mingo, the, the Iroquois, as not trustworthy, of capable of, tr- of doing tricks, of just not people you want to trust too much. The Pawnee, brave, honorable, trustworthy. The party gives... The, the arrival of Hardheart gives the party another option. They can head toward Pawnee lands. And the problem is the Pawnee lands are about the same distance as Middleton's soldiers. So they both trips will be long and dangerous paths to, you know, that require them to both flee the Bush family and get through the Sioux lands. So this takes us to about the halfway point on the prairie. Kind of everything's in order at this point. We have a chase. Uh, they're running from the Bush families, but they have to get through... Sioux lands. How they're going to do that is, and is what's going to dominate the next part of the novel. Um, what are some of our themes in this part of the story? Well, we have the theme of the transfer of the frontier of imperial conflict. Especially, I think Inez. She doesn't do much in the novel. She's all we really know about her is that she's very religious, very Catholic. But she, in a way, I think works more symbolically as the character who's transferring the frontier or as a symbol of the imperial conflicts that are engulfing the lives of these characters. She being a, a representative of the of the Spanish Empire that's declining in the New World. We certainly got a lot here on loyalty to family, especially with characters like Ellen, who are, you know, f- are conflicted by this loyalty to family, loyalty to her lover, her the one who will be her family member in the future, or loyalty to her, the family she grew up when is a challenge she's facing as a character, especially at that dramatic scene where she's defending the, the fort um, from one person, including her fiancé. Love and nature are talked about a lot in this section of the novel, too. We see Natty philosophizing quite a lot about love. And then most importantly, and again, this comes from the conversations between Battius, Dr. Battius and, and Natty, and that is the role of knowledge in life. What is the proper use of knowledge? And is it possible to, to have too much knowledge in a certain setting? Is, is there a point where knowledge becomes not useful anymore? And Natty certainly holds that all, the only knowledge that matters is that which is practical. For Dr. Obedid Bat, the only logical end to knowledge is, is what you can achieve. And there's no reason not to acquire more knowledge. And that will be tested in, in battle eventually or in true conflict and life and death situations. This isn't the most thematically rich part of the story. It's more mostly kind of getting the plot to a point because we're about halfway through now where we have to start resolving plot um, elements. But it does have some nice moments especially I think between Natty and, and Bat or Ellen's standoff is, is a really nice moment too. I also like the backstory about Inez, to be to be honest. So in the next episode, we'll take on the third quarter of the prairie, which will really be kind of a long, prolonged chase scene. The bushes are pushing a little bit in the background, um, but by the end of the next episode, we'll see them entering back in as a major threat. 
And we're going to enter really a very familiar territory, which is a hostile Indians in a frontier setting. So many of the leather stocking tales rest this way. So with that, I will end this episode on, on the prairie. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions or opinions, please leave them below or leave a review on iTunes, or you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, and I will be back with part three of, the, of the Prairie. Good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the daughter. Good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the daughter barrel. Half barrel gallon. Half gallon pint pot. Half a pint jill. Half a jill quarter jill. Never get out the round bowl. Here's good luck. Good luck. Good luck to the barley mow. Here's good luck to the landlord. Good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the landlord. Good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the landlord daughter barrel.